You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Let's look at how we read the New Testament for all it's worth. And so we're going to begin with what are known as the epistles, which is just a way of saying the letters. Much of the New Testament is uh, actually made up of, of letters, right? And so, we're going to look at just how do we read uh, Paul's letters, for example. So, what are some of the rules of thumb that we can uh, bring as we're reading uh, in the New Testament, different letters that Paul wrote, or, or Peter? So, what, first off, and, and you should be getting a um, kind of a running theme here, is you need to understand the context of what's going on when you're reading a book in the Bible. You need to understand what's going on. So, again, you need to look at uh, the historical context uh, that, your le- that the letter that you're reading is situated in. And one of the ways you can do that is if, if you have a, a Bible, most Bibles um, will have some kind of introductory paragraph or even a few pages explaining a little bit about the historical context of that particular book in the Bible. If you have a study Bible, the introductions are probably even a little more extensive, and they'll talk about author who wrote it, they'll talk about the setting, they'll talk about the date, they'll say what's going on, and they'll even have a section on, uh, they'll have maps often, you know, this is where Corinth was, and then there'll usually be a section saying, this is how how the book is structured. Okay, so that's why a study Bible is very helpful, uh, to have some kind of study Bible it just gives you a little bit of background and helps situate what you're about to read. Okay, So, yeah, look at the introduction and maybe in the commentary. We'll talk about commentaries in a little bit. The other thing you need to do is uh, to get into the habit of reading a letter in one sitting. When I taught Ephesians earlier this year, uh, I gave the, the challenge to say, read through the book of Ephesians. Because it, ta- it took, you know, about 15, 20 minutes to read through the book of Ephesians. And so... Um, in, in, in the same way, going back to the illustration, if somebody sends me an email and it's a lengthy email, I'm not going to just read one sentence a day. Or I'm not going to read, read, you know, cut and paste or, 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 or cut out, you know, a middle sentence of an email that Marty sends me. I'm going to look at the whole email to get a sense of what is she saying, right? And so that's very important. And it's, it's important to get into the habit of trying to read through a letter in one sitting. Most of the letters in the New Testament, as I say, you can read through in about 15, 20 minutes. It's not like it's going to take you hours upon hours, right? Uh, and as you read through it, it would be a good practice to, um, to jot down um, some notes. And so that's the other uh, important thing, is as you read in the Bible, uh, it's always good to have a notepad or an iPad or uh, uh, whatever is comfortable for you. But what I do is I often have a, a journal. <coughs> And my journal is, uh, you know, I'll I'll write out some prayers in the journal, but I'll often just write out what I happen to be studying. So right now I'm actually studying the book of Proverbs. And so at night I I read through different parts of the book of Proverbs, write down different things that that I observe, and then often I'll even, in in written form, I'll respond to it in prayer. So uh, jot down some some notes and references. Now here's some of the things that you need to write down. Here's some things to to think about, okay, as, as you're looking at it. 
When you're reading a book in the by uh, a letter, what do you notice about the recipients themselves? Okay, so it's a letter. So who is getting the, this letter? So Paul's writing a letter. Let's say, who is he writing the letter to? And we talked about this a little bit earlier. But what are some of the problems that are arising that give cause to this letter? I mean, I'll receive some emails saying, "David, hi, how are you?" and they just sign their name, but not too many. Usually when I get an email or some kind of letter, there's some issue. David, you're, that preaching, it sucks. I hate it. No, 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 no. But, but something along those lines. Um, no. Um, or some people send me a letter saying, what did you mean by when you said this, right? So there's usually an issue when a letter is written, or there's something that you want to address. And so one of the difficulties and the challenges when you read a letter in the Bible is to try to figure out what are the issues? Because really, you're, re you're reading as it, like a mirror, right? It's like reading one letter. You don't know what the other people have said. You don't know what the issues are, but you can try to extrapolate by what Paul is saying, by what are the questions that are, that, that are coming up. And one of the cool things, if you read, uh, I keep coming back to 1 Corinthians, Paul will actually write at different parts in... in, in, in uh... That's just a reminder... To turn off your ringer. Paul will often say during uh, his letters, he'll say, now, about this issue that you raised. And he'll sometimes quote what they were asking, what they were talking about. And so that's really helpful. When he does that, it's like, okay, so this is the issue. But it's not always easy to find out what's going on. But... I think uh, there's lots that we can do just by reading carefully. We can figure out what, what is being said. So look at, the other thing is, um, look at, uh, you know, what would be some of the issues that would be um, coming up in, let's say, a place like Corinth? Well, if you do a little bit of research about Corinth, you realize that Corinth was a port city. And there's a lot of diversity in the city. There's a lot of stuff that's going on. And there looks like, it looks like, uh, there's a lot of stuff that's happening in the church. Some pretty amazing things. And so Paul's basically speaking into a very messy situation of this church in Corinth. It's kind of made up of from all different people, from all different backgrounds, in kind of a rough town at the time. Okay? So knowing that helps you read it well. Uh, look at Paul's attitudes. What is Paul's connection to the church? Did Paul found the church? Um, how long did he stay there? What kind of relationship does he have with the people of the church? Right? Um, what are some specific things? And you can read this in the letter. What are some specific things you see Paul addressing and you think, you know what, I wonder if that's the issue. I mean, if you read uh, the book of Galatians, let's say, what do you think, if, 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 if some of you are familiar with the book of Galatians, what do you think was one of the issues that was coming up in this church that led Paul to write? addressing that. That's what the book of Galatians is part of it, what he's dealing with. Okay? 
So you have to look very carefully. As I say, we're only reading one side in a letter, but we can get a lot out of that. The other thing is, um, look at how the, how the letter is structured. There's often some natural divisions in a letter, and try to figure out why is it divided that way. And that's really important, because if you just kind of take pieces out of it, you lose the flow of the argument. Uh, one of the uh, um, examples of that is, and, and sometimes this is where translations and headings and things like that in, the, in, in our Bibles can kind of throw us off sometimes. Um, for example, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, Paul talks about husbands and he talks about wives. And often we'll read that, that passage just kind of on its own, but we'll miss kind of the context for this discussion, which is right before where Paul talks about mutual submission. But often what happens, sometimes our Bibles will divide that into an earlier section and then we'll read the following section. But we need to recognize what is the, what is the context. How is the letter divided, right? One of the things, this is very important. Uh, it's worth, I don't have this in your notes, but it's worth writing down. If you want to know one of the themes, one of the, the, the consistent themes in Paul's writings, is you need to get this. This is what Paul says. Much of the time in his letters... He'll, speak, he'll spend the first part of his letters talking about who we are in Christ. It's his favorite preposition is in. We are in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. In Christ you're holy and blameless. In Christ you're this, this, this. This is who we are because of what Jesus Christ has done. Okay? Often in the second part of Paul's letters, he'll say, okay, so if this is who you are in Christ, this is how you need to live in response to that. Okay, Paul always begins with, this is, the, um, this is who you are. The second part is, this is how you're to live. Very, very important, because as Christians, I've said this before, we often confuse those. Sometimes we think, this is what I need to do in my life so that I'm a Christian. Paul said, no, 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 no. Our starting point is this is who you are because of grace of what Jesus has done for you. And then Paul will say, um, live up to what you've already attained. Um, respond to who you already are. Or to use different terms, this is the indicative, this is who you are. And out of the indicative, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. This is the imperative, this is what you have to do in response to that. Or creed, what I believe. Conduct, how I respond. I mean, anyway, that, that's, a, that's a theme often we find in, 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 in letters. Okay, let's look at... Um, let's look at uh, the literary context. Remember, we need to look at, okay, the actual makeup of the letters themselves. Question to ask ourselves again, what is the point? What is the author trying to say in this paragraph? The problem with Paul... I shouldn't say the problem. The great thing about Paul <laughs> is, is, is Paul, he's got so much to say. And sometimes what you'll see, and it's fun to see this in, in, in the passages at times. You'll see um, at times Paul will say this, and he'll say, now for this reason, and then his mind will go somewhere else, and he'll head off on a tangent. And then he'll come back to his original point. But it's kind of hard always to follow when he's going off on a tangent, when he's coming back, because Paul's got so much to say. If you read Ephesians 1, Ephesians 1, almost the entire chapter is one sentence. You know that? It's one sentence. It's like Paul's going, oh, 
oh, it's so cool. This is who we are in Christ. And he just goes and goes and goes, which is very worshipful. But if you're trying to do exegesis, it can get a little challenging at times. But we need to ask the question, why do you think Paul says certain things? Or why do you think the author Peter says things at, at this particular point? How does what he is saying contribute to the overall argument? Okay, those are just questions you need to ask. What, what, is Paul making an argument? If so, what is the argument he's making? And why is he making this argument? All right? A um, couple other things. Uh, there's nothing in the text that does not fit into the argument. You have to kind of look at the, the whole text to see what, what, Paul, what point Paul is making, right? Um, I say, Paul is not always easy to understand because, as I say, he has a lot of different ideas. He's, his, his mind's going a hundred different directions. The challenge for us is, okay, we figure out, okay, what Paul is saying or what Peter is saying in, uh, in, in the letters. The question then becomes, what do these texts mean to us? It's all well and good to say, okay, this is what Paul was saying, this is what was going on in Corinth, and this is the issue that was raised, and this is what Paul is saying in response to that. So, what does that mean to me? You know, how do I apply that to my life? Well, how, how do I get, going back to our original question, how do I get from there to here? And that's a challenge. This is where it gets a little tricky. Um, what do these texts mean to us? Well, one of the challenges we have is sometimes we have what is called selective hermeneutics, right? And so, for example, we'll read the book of Ephesians, and it's like, I love the fact that in Christ I'm holy and blameless. I love the fact because of what Jesus did, I am set free, and, and, and I'm no longer under condemnation. This is who I once was, but in Christ this is who I am now. That's awesome. I'm not so keen on the following Jesus part where I actually have to do something, but I'm totally into receiving God's grace, right? That's called selective hermeneutics. Or I like this, I like this point, not so much this, and you know, it's like salad bar hermeneutics, right? I like this, but I don't like that, right? So we need to be consistent here. So here's a basic rule. Basic rule number one is that a text cannot mean what it never could have meant to its author or to their readers. That's why you need to do exegesis first. What does the text mean? What, what, what is being said? Somebody once said, in, um, you know there's a passage in 1 Corinthians, it's uh, chapter 13, it's the love chapter you hear during weddings. Uh, there's, a, there's a passage in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where it says, when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. And some interpreters have looked at that and say, well, what that means is like things like speaking in tongues and prophecy and all that, like that's from an older time, like that's when the church was still kind of imperfect, but now we have the completed Bible and everything, this is the time of perfection, and so therefore things, gifts that we see in the New Testament no longer apply to today. Okay, that's the argument. But the problem is, is that that would have made no sense to the people in Corinth. That's not what, now you can maybe come to that conclusion through theology or through different means, but that's not what that text is saying. And so you can see what, what the, the text can only say what the text is saying. You cannot, we run into trouble when we take a text and we, want, and we change it to say what we want it to say, right? So you have to honor what the passage is saying within its own context. The second rule 
is, um, is whenever there's some um, parallels between our life and the life in the first century, then what we're reading can apply to us. So, for, the, for example, in the book of Romans, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's still pretty much true today, right? The wages of sin is death. That's still, you know, it, it made sense then and it made sense here, right? But we need to do our exegesis as well, right? We need to do our exegesis as well. Um, there's some parts, when you read in the Bible, you'll, you'll, you'll read in, uh, in the letters, there's some issues that come up. You can see for Paul, or for Peter, they're not really big issues to them. Right? You know, uh, Paul, let me think, uh, gives the ex- example. Paul saying to Timothy, you know, take a little bit of wine for your stomach, right? You know, hey, Paul's not making some major statement. So, basically what I'm saying, if it doesn't really matter to Paul, if it's not a big issue for Paul or for Peter, it's probably not going to be a big issue. It shouldn't be a big issue for us. So we should make something a big issue that wasn't a big issue. If Paul, if it was a matter of indifference for, for, for Paul, it can be a matter of indifference for us today. And that, you know, and even, you know, I mean, the example of, uh, of drinking wine, I mean, you look at different cultures, right? Um, you know, in some cultures today, it, it, it could be an issue. In other cultures, it's, it's, it's not so much an issue. Um, you can't really go to the New Testament to draw some prohibition on, you know, whether a glass of wine is good or bad. Oh, hey, Timothy had a glass of wine, so we must all drink wine. No, that's not what it's saying. Right? So if it doesn't matter in the New Testament, if it doesn't matter to Paul, it shouldn't matter to us. Does that make sense? Okay. The other thing we should look at is cultural relativity. And that, and that means we need to always uh, distinguish between the uh, core of the message um, and what is, what is at the core and what is, at, what is peripheral. Okay, so that's why we need to keep, in, try, keep in, 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 in our minds the overall story of the Bible. If you, if you keep the overall story of the Bible in mind, what the core message of, of, of Scripture is, that helps us to discern what is important and what's not so important as we're reading through the New Testament. So, for example, uh, when Paul says, all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, yeah, that's pretty central to the overall story, isn't it? That, that theme tends to come up over and over again in Scripture, right? Now, Paul says, when you greet each other, greet each other with a holy kiss. Some, you know, I'm not against holy kissing, but... Uh, <laughs> Somehow, that's not really central to the message of Scripture, is it? Right? Right? Right, okay. <laughs> maybe it is. Yeah, maybe it is. <laughs> yeah, I'll bring it up. Maybe at the next elders meeting you can bring that up. Val, <laughs> talk about that. Um, we need to distinguish what is moral and what is not. You know, when Paul lists sins, those sins are pretty much across the board and would apply today. Um, but other issues like foot washing or, or, or different things like that, maybe not so much. Or like as I say, a holy kiss. Uh, Paul, at one point, since he talks about his personal preference for celibacy. Right? That's his personal preference. But we don't have to um, extend that, thankfully, across the board. Right? Paul talks a lot about loving one another. That seems to be pretty uniform. 
So we need to distinguish with what is moral and what is not moral. And we need to also distinguish between the principle, what is the principle being taught, and how do you apply it? So um, in 1 Peter, I think it's in 1 Peter where it talks about um, appropriate dress, um, what, what is appropriate for a woman. Um, in 1 Corinthians it talks about um, head coverings, issues of head coverings. And, um, so you need to understand what, what did that mean within the context? What's going on in the context? But then you have the challenge of saying, okay, is there a principle there? Right? So is, is, a, is a principle that when you're leading worship, you know, that you don't wear a bikini, right? Maybe, yeah. Maybe there, there is a principle in terms of, 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 of modesty and, and, and the clothes you wear, but you don't necessarily have to draw a one-to-one correlation because we talk about head coverings. In some churches, that, that was an issue. How many of you grew up in a church or were part of a church where head coverings was, was an issue? Where women had to make sure they're... Yeah. The older generation. Yeah. But, but there are principles involved, and you need to understand, well, okay, what is the principle? But then the challenge is, okay, here's a principle. How do you apply that specifically in your cultural context? In, in our culture, we are, we're in different cultural contexts. Um, yeah. Dave? Yeah. I guess one of the things that troubles me is, and you've got to answer her question for me. Anyway, th- th- we get so far off base sometimes. Like some churches will say that there's there's rules or laws against wearing jeans to church. Oh yeah. And if they came to this church, they'd have a heart failure. Yeah. And yet, other churches, I see people coming in in shorts and flip flops. So, I know what it says in the Bible about modesty dressing modestly but how is it that we get so many different interpretations of that well I, I would say there, there, there's a tendency when you just by being human um, let me just put it this way it's a lot easier to follow rules than it is to follow Jesus <laughs> it's true that's you true. give me a rule I can find a loophole right that's what the Pharisees were doing all the time and then that's what Christians do today. Give me, give me the rules. I'd much rather follow a rule that I can have some degree of control over than a holy God that I have to follow. And, and, and the thing with rules and regulations, um, as I, say, I think part of it is that it, they're, they're easier to follow. You don't have to deal with God. And that's a tendency among humans right from the beginning, right? So I, th- I think that's part of it. And two, you also just have to, I mean, we, we live within cultures. We live within history. Like we live within Coquitlam in 2012, and there's a culture, and there's, there's a history to this church, and there's a culture to the church, and that affects things. And so part of being a Christian is to learn how to live out the Christian life within the culture that you find yourself in, right? And so, for example, I used to pastor in a Chinese church. And... You know, God forbid I would not, you know, I would have to wear a suit and tie every single week. Yeah, yeah. Um, and because that was a culture. And, uh, you know, I'm not a big suit and tie kind of guy, but it was, it was a culture and that was important to them. And so the principle is, is if, if me wearing a suit is going to help people listen better, I'll wear a suit. 
you know, if I'm going to wear flip-flops and a t-shirt and people are just going to be so mad and be looking at this flip-flops and the t-shirt and, and tuning me out, then, well, that's an issue. And so you need to understand the culture of the church. You can also shape culture. I'll let you in on a secret. Maybe I should. Well, Pastor Mark and I, ten, over 10 years ago, we talked because, you know, we didn't always want to wear suit and ties. When, when I started here, we wore a jacket and tie. A tie? A tie. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think she knows what one is. It was, it was the olden days, right? <laughs> Ten so, years? Well, just, well, a culture can change a lot. Tenth Avenue, I remember, was all suit and ties. But uh, Pastor Mark and I, we said, okay, Mark would say, I'll wear a jacket this week, but no tie. And I said, okay, next week I'll wear a tie, but no jacket, right? <laughs> it's like moving the uh, piano across the platform incrementally, right? Because <laughs> you can shape cultures, right? And, and I would say, looking at Coquitlam today and, and our demographic within our church, for me, on a weekend service, to wear a suit and tie, I think could throw off people. Yeah, I think, I, I, I think it could. Yeah. And, and so you need to recognize culture changes, right? And, and, and there's always going to be a plurality of views, and so not everybody's going to be happy. But then you try to cre- create a culture that, the, and I think Pastor Mark has done this brilliantly, that one of the cultures in our church is let the main thing be the main thing and not worry about other things. And he's done so well at that. That you know We'll fight over the Book of Romans, yes, but we will not fight over the color of the carpet. We're just not going to do that. Right? Okay, so, th- but those are great questions. It's all about... Uh, about context, right? So we need to understand also um, when we read the, uh, the epistles, when we read the letters, what are some cultural differences from then until now? And do those cultural differences shape how we look at some things? So for example, um, one of the things, if, if you read in, in, in a lot of Paul's letters, um, he talks about women forbidding women from, uh, uh, from teaching and, and, and speaking within church and, and, and certain rules and uh, and, and restrictions to that. But one of the things you might want to factor in is what is going on in Corinth, for example, or what is going on in Ephesus. And some scholars would say that, you know, in, in the first century, women had very little education. And so now they're being, part of, being brought in on, on something that's quite exciting. And it seems to be that there's a lot of disruption going on within the church. And it was out of that context that Paul is speaking. Right? Because there's tension in, in, in his writings. On one hand, he's saying, you know, don't speak. On the other hand, he's talking about women when you prophesy, so they are speaking. There's other references to women who are obviously co-workers with him. So what's going on there? How do you understand that? And so those are factors that you need to take into consideration. I mean, women today are as educated, if not more educated, than men. So does that new reality shape things? There's debate on this, and now is not the time to discuss this. We did that all summer long, right? In, in, in the Alliance, that was, that was a, the, the big discussion. There is debate on this, but those are some of the questions that you bring to the table in the debate, right? You don't just say what the guy, ah, oh, the Bible said it, I believe it, and that settles it. No, well, what does it say, right? You need to understand that. Um, sometimes, as I say, it's not easy to distinguish. Oh, the other thing about cultural differences you know, just for example, there's much in, the, in, in Paul's writing talking about honoring the king and being submissive to your government leaders, which is a good principle, but we don't have a king. 
<laughs> you want to go back to the king days, right? Okay. Well, we have a queen. <laughs> we have a queen, but we don't live in a monarchy, really, right? We live in a democracy. So living in a democracy, does that affect how we relate to government officials? Because part of living in a democracy is we can, we can have discussion, we can write letters, we can say you know, to, uh, to certain leaders, we, we don't agree with your policies, and we, you know, nice and politely. And you can say that. You can't say that in a monarchy, right? So does our new political context change how we understand those passages? Perhaps it does. Okay. I always find it interesting in the States that when a Republican is in power, those verses come out left and right. When a Democrat's in power, you never hear those verses, or you seldom hear it. Um, anyhow, that's an aside. Okay, the last thing, and, and this is very important. Um, yeah, we need to distinguish what is cultural, what's not. The most important thing is we need to be charitable. Um, in things essential, we need to be unified. In things that are not essential, um, there, there's diversity. But in all that we do, and this is where we always get it wrong, there needs to be charity. And, uh, you know, it's okay to disagree with each other. I think one of the challenges for Christians is that we don't know how to disagree agreeably. We just don't. I, I, you know, you don't agree with me, oh, I'm going to start my own church. Right? Or we have a consumer mentality. I don't like what Pastor David said. I'm going to go down to the church down the street. We have a shopping mentality, right? But one of the things we need to learn is how to disagree with each other agreeably. Okay? Okay. Let's just move on uh, quickly just to uh, the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels are not books by Jesus. They're books uh, that tell the story of the life of Jesus. And they contain a large collection of his teaching. The Gospels are not a higher level. It's not a higher level of writing compared to, let's say, Paul's writings. We've got red letter edition. Well, see, isn't that interesting, though? The whole red letter edition. What does that communicate? That is more important. That is more important, right? Paul's letters were written before the Gospels. Like just in terms of, of, of chronology, the Gospels were later in composition. So one of the things we need to do is we, we need to, uh, one of the challenges, again, uh, the Gospels are written, it's, it's, it's first century culture. How do we translate ideas from the Gospels to our own cultural settings? And we need to do that. We need to do that wisely. Otherwise, we end up writing books like, what would Jesus eat? <laughs> no, I'm not kidding you. There are books out there called, what would Jesus eat? No, Jesus ate that, so that's got to be good. And as Pastor Mark would say, okay, and then we'll all wear togas, okay? Um, you know, what would Jesus wear, or how did Jesus have his hair? Um, no, 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 we, 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 we missed the point. What do we need to draw from that? Well, first off, let's look a little bit about the Gospels. There's four Gospels. And the reason why there's four, most scholars would say, is that there's different Christian communities um, expressing, uh, they, they had a book about who Jesus was. Uh, in when we read the Gospels, when we exegete the Gospels, uh, we need to think in terms of the historical setting of Jesus and also, get, get this, we don't just have to understand what's going on in Jesus' day, in his cultural context. We also need to understand 
what is going on within the context of the author of the Gospels. You see, there's an, there's, there's an added challenge here. So what is going on um, what is going on in Luke's life when he gives us the Gospel of Luke? And so there's a number of questions we need to look at when we read the Gospels. Is we need to look at the historical context of Jesus in general. That's where Pastor Mark's uh, Fifth Gospel tours, those are very helpful to see, get, get a picture of uh, what was going on within the, the context of, of Jesus at the time. We need to look at the historical context of Jesus in particular. So let's look at when, 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 Jesus, um, when Jesus was teaching, what was going on in the larger sense? What's going on in the Roman Empire? How did Palestine fit into the larger picture of the Roman Empire? But then also look at specifically what's going on in Galilee, what's going on in, in Jerusalem at this time, what's going on specifically within the area where Jesus ministered. But then you also have to look at the context of the evangelists. Who wrote, you know, who wrote the book of Luke? Uh, can you guess? <laughs> the Gospel of Luke? Dr. Luke. Okay. Now what was, what was unique about Luke? Does anybody know? Okay, what else? Something he wasn't else. Sorry? I heard somebody say it over there. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't Jewish. He was Gentile. So, okay, just knowing that, how do you think, how do you think that would factor in, in in what Luke offers us? What do you think Luke, if, if Luke is, is he's non-Jewish, he's Gentile, how do you think that would play out in terms of how he puts together the story of Jesus. What do you think would be one of his prime concerns? Well, to be more more of an independent view, because it wasn't following what the Jewish view was. It was a Gentile. It was a more open or broad view of what it what he'd actually seen. You would you would expect with Luke that his 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 intended audience would probably be the the the, 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 the greater. Gentile world, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what other book did Luke write? Acts. Acts. And so what's the story of Acts? It's the gospel going out into all the nations, right? Mm -hmm. And so that helps you, right? Just knowing that when you read the book of Luke, it helps you understand the book of Luke, doesn't it? Okay, Luke's a Gentile. He's probably... And you, and you read the book of Luke, there's a number of times where Jesus says something or Jesus teaches something, and then in parentheses... There's an explanatory comment from Luke. Have you ever noticed that? Well, what this meant was this, 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 and this. Or Jews would often do this, 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 because he's writing it to a Gentile audience. Right? So knowing uh, who wrote the Gospels, knowing a little bit about their life, is helpful. Right? So we need to take that into consideration. Um, the other thing is uh, the literary context is we need to understand not the periscopes. I don't know why it turned out as periscopes. It's pericopes. There's a great word for it. Um, you need to understand, you know, a, a pericope is basically a section, a section of writing. That's all that means. It's just a great word for that. It's, 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 a, it's a, a contained piece of writing. When you're reading the Gospels, we need to think horizontally and vertically. Horizontally is, okay, in the book of Mark it says this. I wonder if in the book of Luke he, uh, it says the same thing. I wonder if John has this story as well. I wonder if Matthew has this story. And if so, if they all tell the story, what does that mean? 
or some of them tell the story, what does that mean? Where are the differences? Where, 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 where are there similarities? So those are important questions to ask. Because what, when you compare, let's say, the teachings of Jesus in the book of Luke to, let's say, the book of Mark, where there's, cha- where, where, where there's distinctive teaching, let's say, in one book and not in the other, maybe that is an emphasis for, let's say, example, Luke, that he wants to make in his gospel that Mark, who has a whole different purpose in, in, in writing his gospel, does not share. Now, this isn't meant to be complicated. All this does is it just helps you think through, okay, Mark, what is Mark's agenda? If you read the book of Mark, if you had to describe, maybe using one word or two words to describe the feel of the book of Mark, what would you, how would you describe it? It's fast-paced. If you read the book of Mark, it'd be like, and then Jesus did this, and right after that, and immediately after that, and then this happened, and this happened. It is flying. And Mark, he's telling the story. He's telling the story of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and just how it's radically transforming the countryside. And you get out of breath reading the book of Mark. And also another theme in the book of Mark is just how the, God, the, the, the disciples just never really clued in to what Jesus was teaching. And, uh, and, and, and Jesus' words tend to be a little harsher to the disciples in the book of Mark than, let's say, you find in, in the book of John. But part of that is, is there's, there's a different purpose you know, um, and, and the book of Matthew, if you had to describe something that's distinctive in the book of Matthew in terms of Jesus' teachings, or at least how they're gathered, what would, what, what would you notice? Do you notice anything interesting about the book of Matthew? Take a look at this. All of Jesus' teachings have been gathered together. And it usually... There, it, it, um, there's, an inter, there's a kind of a introductory statement that goes into some teaching that Jesus does. And then once it comes to the end, there's, a, there's an exit statement and it goes back into the story of Jesus. There are five, five groups of teaching throughout the book of Matthew. And some scholars think that Matthew, he arranged it that way. Um, the five reflects possibly the five books of the uh, Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And it was probably arranged that way as a way of teaching new Christian communities about who Jesus was. It was done, you know, he was probably a Sunday school teacher. Who, Matthew was probably a Sunday school teacher and a tax collector. Um, in order to teach, it, uh, teach the, um, the community about the life of Jesus. It's, it's arranged for the purpose of teaching. So just knowing that, or just kind of looking at, at how the uh, gospel is structured, is very helpful. And it helps you understand, okay, what, 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 is, what is the gospel writer trying to say? Okay? You also look at the, who are the recipients. Um, where, you know, at, at what point is Jesus' teaching directed to just his close disciples, the larger crowds, or maybe to his opponents? Now, one last thing. I mean, we could talk a lot about, uh, about the gospels, but I want to say this. This is one last thing I want to say about the gospels. I don't have this in your notes. You may want to write this down. Um, the Gospels, as we receive them in the Bible, that is the Word of God. When we take the story of Jesus and we make it into a novel or we kind of try to weave it together into some one seamless harmonization of the four Gospels, that's helpful. That helps us 
kind of understand the chronology and the story of Jesus, but that is not the same as Scripture. That the Scriptures are the four Gospels as we receive them. Okay? I don't know if you, if you felt the, the distinction that I'm trying to make here. That the book of John, as we received it, structured that way is how we are to approach the book of John. There's no point in taking the four Gospels and trying to extrapolate some kind of story or some kind of string of teachings and saying that this has authority. It doesn't. What has authority are the individual books of the Gospels. And we have to receive them as units. In the same way we would receive 1 Corinthians as a unit. The same way we would receive the book of Jeremiah as a unit, right? Does it, do you understand that distinction? That's very, very important. Because sometimes we'll read a story... You know, whether it be Anne Rice's story of Jesus or whatever, it, that's not gospel. That's not holy scripture, right? Even a harmonization, that's not holy scripture. Holy scripture is the Bible as we have received, right? Paul. Okay, um, you said the gospel is not a higher letter. It's not a higher letter. The gospel is not a higher letter. The gospel is not a higher letter. Yes. Yes. No, what I mean is sometimes people take the red letters of Jesus as being really, really, really important, and the not red letters as secondary importance, and then maybe Paul's letters as, you know, down a little bit more. And Hebrews, man, we, don't, we just don't understand that one, right? Um, it, it, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's a New Testament. It, it, is, it is the revelation of God is a New Testament as given to us. And so there's no hierarchy within that. Right? That's important. Okay, uh, just a brief word on parables. Uh, parables are not allegories. Jesus spoke in parables. Um, we need to look at the question of why did Jesus use a parable what was, what was the function of the parable? A parable is a story that Jesus would tell to make a point, right? And so sometimes what we do in the church is we take these parables and, and we teach them to our kids and say, isn't that a nice story? There's some good moral lessons in that. But we, what, what have we done? We've completely ripped it out of the context because Jesus gives parables at certain times and certain places for a specific reason. What are those reasons? Those are things, those are questions we need to ask. So when Jesus gave the story of the Good Samaritan, what was, what was the purpose of that parable? Do you know? What, what, was, the, uh, what was the effect of that, of that parable? What, 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 what kind of uh, impact do you think that parable would have? Be a uh, good neighbor. A call to be a good neighbor? Yeah. And, uh, but, okay. but within the context of, let's say, Jesus coming as the true Israel to be the light of all the nations, right? We've got to keep the overall story in mind. If we keep the overall story in mind, what is Jesus' teaching on the Good Samaritan have to do with anything? Yes, to be a good neighbor, but what else? Who, who, who is a good neighbor? Those stinky, no good, rotten Samaritans. Right? Within, and see, you have to understand the cultural context. To be a Samaritan was one of the lowest of lows. Right? And you could be sure, people gather around Jesus like, what, he was a good neighbor? And so Jesus, he's communicating something. He's saying that the kingdom of God, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God is going to have huge effects where people that you want to keep on the outside, remember that's what Israel did, 
you know, if the light is ours, you guys can go to hell in a handbasket on the outside. Jesus is saying, no, no, part of being the true light of the world, this is the, the new kingdom that I'm bringing, is that people that you would consider scummy, no good Samaritans are now, instead of being on the outside, are brought into the kingdom of God. Do you see? That's huge, right? And so we go from, oh, that's a kind of a neat little story, and a cute little story, to this is, there, there's, a, there's a huge purpose behind this. Now, one, of the, one last thing uh, about uh, parables. Why do you think Jesus used parables? Easy to understand, easy to remember. Easy to understand, easy to remember. Okay. Any other reason? I think he wanted to talk to those people in their language, like talk to them where they're at. I mean, you're going to talk to a farmer about, about the types of soil. A farmer's going to understand the soil. Very good, yeah. So, so using the language of, of, of the people so that they understood Right? And you think about it, even when you think about uh, Nathan telling the story to David, uh, when you tell a story, what, 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 like if I say to you, stop doing that, that's wrong, what could be your reaction? <laughs> Probably going to flip you the bird. Talk to the hand, right? right? Talk to the hand, right? But if I say, you know, there was this guy, you're hearing a story. And what Eugene Peterson talks about, he, he has a course on parables, and he says, Jesus, he tells it slant. He tells it slant, because when you tell a story, when you tell a parable, it gets around your defenses. And the effect of a parable is like, well, isn't that a great story? And a person would walk away, it's like, wait a minute, he was talking about me. And it would hit you afterwards. And so that's one, one of the things that's going on. Linda? We remember stories, yeah, and then we're able to repeat them. Very good. That's good. Okay, so that's uh, the best clues as to how a parable is found is, is their function. How does it fit within the overall story? How do they fit within the overall picture of the kingdom of God? Uh, a brief word on the book of Acts. Uh, Acts is history. It is a story of the church, but it's not history like we would see. It's not just a series of chronological events being laid out. Again, who writes the book of Acts is, is, is Luke, and Luke has, he has an agenda. He does have an agenda, and he, he, is, tracing, um, he is tracing how, um, in, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, how, how the gospel, how the reality of who Jesus is, the inbreaking of the kingdom of God was going to spread to all the nations of the world, right? And if you look at the book of Acts, if you look at the beginning, it's primarily about Peter and talking about how Jesus is the fulfillment of the messianic expectations of the Old Testament. But once you get to, I think, about chapter 8 or chapter 9, the, the concern for the rest of the book of Acts is focuses in on Paul and on how Paul is, um, is a messenger, the apostle, to the Gentiles. And much of the rest of the book of Acts is talking about how the gospel spreads to all the nations of the world. Right? Here's one of the challenges of the book of Acts is you could read the book of Acts and you could think, you need to ask yourself two questions. Is this descriptive or is it prescriptive? So you read the book of Acts and you see people, uh, they receive the Holy Spirit and they speak in tongues. Okay, so part of the sign of being filled with the Holy Spirit is you have to speak in tongues. If you're not, well, you're not really saved. There are denominations that have gone down that road, right? Because they read the book of Acts as prescriptive, saying this is, this, is the pre this is how it ought to look. 
But is it, or is it descriptive? And that's one of those questions that you need to ask. Or, or is it a little bit of both? Are there are elements, some teachings within there that are prescriptive for how we live out the Christian life and how we understand the church? But are there other things which are descriptive in, that are uh, a reflection of the particular events that took place in the early church that do not necessarily apply to today? Those are hermeneutical questions that I'll leave it to you to figure hermeneutical. out. Hermeneutical. Yeah. Back to Herman. Okay, so we're going to do very briefly. The easiest one is the book of Revelation. Yeah. Now, I love that comic. you got to like this one. I don't care if you can't find your horse. You're not riding to the apocalypse on that. There's supposed to be a fifth horse. Now, the thing about the book of Revelation, I mean, it's, I, I taught it earlier this year. How many of you took that class that I taught earlier this year? Yeah, a few of you, right? Yeah. Um, it's a fun, it's a fun book. If you want to understand the book of Revelation, read uh, Daryl Johnson's Discipleship on the Edge. There's a book reference for you. Daryl Johnson, who's a pastor at First Baptist Church in Vancouver, Discipleship on the Edge. Um, it, it really opens up the book of Revelation. Okay, actually, honestly, very quickly, the nature of Revelation. The challenge for Revelation is that it's a particular kind of literature. In fact, it is three genres mixed into one. One, it is apocalyptic writing which has its own set of rules, its own set of uh, meanings, like numbers have certain meanings, uh, certain language, uh, certain images. It's, it's very image-focused. One of the ways to understand the book of Revelation uh, that's very helpful, I heard actually Daryl Johnson talked about this, is to look at the images in the book of Revelation like you would see a political cartoon. They're like a, a political cartoon. So he has a picture of, uh, uh, he gives an example of a, uh, a, a newspaper cartoon that has a dragon swallowing up Hong Kong. And the date of the, uh, the cartoon was 1997. It was in 1997. And so you look at that cartoon, what is it telling you? What's it, what, what, what's it trying to teach you? Yeah, is it talking about China who's taking back uh, over control of Hong Kong? And how dangerous will that be for the people of Hong Kong? Nobody would look at that cartoon and say, wow, Apparently, there's a really big dragon that's so big it can actually swallow up and eat Hong Kong. No, it's, it's all symbolic. So, but you need to understand how those images work. And so that's part of uh, the challenge of Revelation. Because numbers, if you go, you can go wrong with numbers, and before you know it, you know, Ronald Reagan was the Antichrist. I mean, it, you, can, you can go there, right, if, if you're not careful. Um, but it's not just an apocalypse. Apocalypse has nothing to do with Vietnam. Apocalypse has everything to do with unveiling, revealing. Uh, showing, so it, it's 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 something being revealed to us. It's a prophecy, so it's it's not just a future telling, but as Marty was saying, a prophecy more in the uh, New, uh, New Testament understanding. It's kind of foretelling that this is um, um, this is this is uh, what God is saying about the state of things at the time, right? So there's a prophetic side to it, but it's also a letter. And so the first part of the book of uh, Revelation functioned very much like a, like a letter would. So, having said all that, <laughs> oh man, those are small. <laughs> you can all read that, right? Yeah. All right. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Okay, the, the primary purpose of Revelation is to teach us, um, one of the first things to ask when you read the book of Re Revelation is this, not what does this mean to America heading into 2013? 
That's not the first question to ask. The first question to ask is, what would this have meant to the churches to whom the book of Revelation was given? Like the seven churches. It has to mean something to them. That goes back to what Marty was saying. You know, if, if a prophet stood up, an Old Testament prophet stood up and says, you know, listen to what I have to say. In 900 years from now, this is what's... And people are like, you know, I don't give a rip what's going to happen in 900 years. I mean, what's that got to do with me? It's got to speak to me. What's, what's, you know? And so the book of Revelation is spoken, is written to the people at the time. And it had to have meaning to the people who are receiving the revelation at the time. That's not to say that there aren't ramifications for, for um, future events. We don't know. Well, it's certainly the, the, the second coming of Jesus Christ. But the book of Revelation had to make sense to the people living at a time. And, the, and what's going on? Who are the recipients? Well, you have the recipients are these churches that are undergoing increasing numbers of arrest, increasing number of oppression, a persecution by the Roman Empire. And people are asking the question, maybe this Jesus thing was all a lie. Maybe Jesus wasn't the person that we, we thought he was. Maybe Jesus, you know, he did rise from the dead. Maybe, maybe you know, every, our, our church is about ready to fall apart. And Jesus gives John this revelation of, saying, of, of showing where Jesus is. That God is still at the control panel. That God is still sovereign over all things. And these, and these powers that they think that they run the, that they call the shots, that they are all supreme, they're not. Right? So it, it, it speaks to a persecuted church. And so it's no surprise that around the world, in many per, uh, countries where, where Christians are persecuted, the, the book that resonates the most with people is the book of Revelation. Right? Well, I can get right into the book of Revelation, but uh, as I say, it's difficult because it is an apocalypse. The other thing about the book of Revelation, it has over over 500 allusions to the Old Testament. And so if you try to read the book of Revelation without really knowing the Old Testament, you're going to end up in some funny places, right? Again, it it speaks to to those uh, at the time. The opening words of Revelation are not John to the suburban church in Coquitlam in 2012, but it's to the church in the first century, right? We need to beware of uh, eisegesis, not to do eisegesis, to read into the text, but we need to continue to read out of the text. Now, I could go on a lot more, but we're kind of running out of time. But the book of Revelation is not a scary book. A lot of people get so scared of the book of Revelation. Read Daryl Johnson's book, Discipleship on the Edge. It's all about who Jesus is, the supremacy of Jesus, and our response to who Jesus is, his grace. How do we respond to him? Who's going to be Lord in my life? Is it going to be Caesar, or is it going to be Jesus? Is it going to be Coquitlam Center, or is it going to be Jesus? Is it going to be my job, or is it going to be Jesus? Whose way will I live? Will I live according to the way, the truth, and the life, or am I going to live my way? Under which reality will I align my life? Am I going to live under the reality of Coquitlam Center saying that what matters most is a new comfortable pair of jeans? Or am I going to live my life and align my life under the reality of the kingdom of God? And so over and over again in the book of Revelation, you come to the point where you come to the crossroads and say, which way are are you going to choose? Are you going to go this way? Are you going to go this way? And you'll come that over and over and over again. Okay, so it, it, I think it's, it's a book of incredible hope. And it's a book that, that does reveal the incredible love and grace of Jesus Christ. And also, if you want a book that, that talks about 
the preeminence of Jesus Christ. You'll find it in the book of Revelation. But it's still a very difficult book to, <laughs> to, to read, and we need help with that one. Otherwise, we go in some pretty strange directions. Okay? So what we'll do is uh, Marty's going to do something in Bible study tools. We'll wrap up, and then we'll have some questions. So I, I don't know about how many of you, but when I learned to do Bible study, there was no internet, and so we had like these huge books that yeah weren't very were very expensive and weren't very helpful, and so the internet has totally revolutionized the ability to study scripture because there's so much on there. Um, people have done a great job of doing that, so I'm just going to show you some of the of the places you can find it, and then um, but people who still have books, books are still helpful. So, <laughs> okay, so there's a new resource I just found that I sent to David, and it's pretty amazing, and it has everything you could possibly ever want in it, and weirdly enough, it's Bible.cc, which I've never heard of the .cc, but if you go to Bible.cc, you can get the next one, which is interlinearbible.org and concordances.org, and so if you ever need a concord, so interlinearies are... If you want to see what what was the word in the Greek, an interlinary will have the Greek above and the English below, or the Hebrew above and the English below, and you can say, hey, Ruach, that's spirit. Okay, where else is Ruach used in the Old Testament? So I really recommend both those resources. Concordances will tell you what Ruach is. Um, yes? yeah, I have a question, because I've tried one of these websites, and I, and I get very frustrated with it, because sometimes they ask you to Right. Oh yeah, this one isn't like that. Are there any of those like that? Because no, they're all they're all connected. There's no subscription. You just go on and you can get almost anything you need. It's got everything that's free connected in there. So Bible.cc, through that you can get quite a few things that I think are very helpful. Um, so good Bible study tools are different translations. They're all available online. There's some other ones I'll show you. You need an interlinear Bible, because so if you need to know what a word means, you need to know what the word is, and then you use a concordance to look up what that word is. So first, the different translations, the interlinear Bible, the concordances, and then finally commentaries are very helpful. The problem with commentaries is you can't actually buy a series and go every book in the series is good. So say you're studying the book of Romans, I would do a Google search and say, you know, good commentaries in the book of Romans and then read people's reviews on them or, you know, I don't know, if you're not a scholar, you're going to have to ask David what is a good commentary for a certain book because, again, you could have a great commentary from the Word Biblical Commentary series for one book and then for another book it could be really bad. So that's tricky. Um, so I did some screenshots for you. This is Bibles.cc, which I'm not sure if you can see. So these are the parallel translations. So this is Genesis 3.1, and the list goes down. Everything ever, every translation in English that was ever done, there it is all on one page, and you can just read it all. So you go to Bible.cc, you type in Genesis 3.1, all different translations come in. And you can actually see on the left a little bit of the maps. They have maps that come up for where was, where do you think Genesis 3, they even got a place for the Garden of Eden there, I'm not sure how accurate that is. And then <laughs> on the right side, they would have cross-references also to, um, and then at the bottom you can see the concordance. 
So any of the words that show up in that chapter, you can click on one of those and it'll give you other places that word was. So it's a great, really easy tool. If you're looking at a verse and you want to find out more information, it's all on the page. It's free. You don't have to sign up. You just go on and use it. Esor.net is, unfortunately for Mac users, doesn't work on Mac unless you have like a parallel system going there, which I've just started using a Mac and I haven't ventured into the parallel systems. But I always used Esor.net when I had a PC. And um, again, you can see um, on the top is the, is, the, um, is the verses and you can see all the different versions you can do it in or parallel underneath. That is the concordance. You can see this right here. This word called down here, they've got what the Greek word is, what the root of it is, where it's used in other places, and then over here is a commentary on, on uh, Romans 8.28. So that's a really good resource. It's free. You download it onto your computer. It's safe, and um, it's a great resource. Just a guy does it. A guy just set it up, and he yeah. does it for free. It's yeah. pretty amazing. So. BibleGateway.com, probably a lot of you know about this one. Again, it's a really great search tool. So I'm doing a sermon on the one another's in the New Testament. So I just typed in one another at the top. I made sure I only wanted the verses in the New Testament. And every verse with the term one another, it's going to come up for me in the New Testament. So it's pretty easy to use as well. You can do parallel versions. And then it has some commentary information on BibleGateway.com. As well, so I use BibleGateway.com probably every day just to look up a verse. Oh, where is that again in the Bible? And I just type in whatever snake and every word that has snake comes, every verse that has snake comes up. Okay, NetBible.org is another one. And I think you know, for each of us, you know, you try the different ones. You'll probably have one you like better than another that fits how your brain works. And um, so NetBible, I put up Matthew one um, and. You can see, again, it has cross-references there. It's telling me who the wife of Uriah is. Got Bathsheba up there, where you can find her in the Bible. All different kinds of comments in netbible.org. And then my favorite, books.google.ca. So tons of commentaries are for free on Google Books. So if I want a commentary on Matthew, I, on the left, I can select if I want, which I do, only those that have previews available because I don't want to go and look and just find nothing. And then I can go and read Matthew Gundry's commentary or Robert Gundry's commentary on Matthew. I can't copy and paste out of it, but I can read it and get the information. It's free, it's fast. If I really like a commentary, maybe I'll buy it later. Um, but that's a great resource that has tons of Christian books on it, interestingly enough. So. Okay, then there's, um, so I've just summarized those resources there on that one page, which you'll have in your thing. And then there's also software resources. So, <clears throat> sorry, Logo Software is something I also purchased many years ago before all these tools were available online. And it's still very helpful. So this is my Logo Software, and I also bought a bunch of journal articles with it. And so again, on the left, I can do an exegesis um, I can put in the passage that I'm want, wanting to do, and it'll bring up all the references, the journal articles I have on Acts 2, which I'm looking at, and then I can, I can look at all. So you, it would be worth looking at if you have money and you want to spend it. 
You can get a lot of the information for free, though. <laughs> um, and then as well, the IV Press reference collection on CD-ROM. David uses that. Do you want to say anything about that, David? Well, it's just it's a collection of the um, InterVarsity Press. They have the Bible background commentary, um, Jesus and the Gospel, Paul and his letters. It's just all available on CD-ROM. A few years ago, it was quite cheap. You get it for like $25 or something like okay, that. Okay, so good. Good stuff. Okay, and then... If you're an advanced, like say you've just got a problem and you really want to know the answer to it and the commentaries aren't detailed enough and your research isn't detailed enough, I go to this, I go to EBCOhost through my local public library. I check with David, you guys are on FVRL, right? Fraser Valley Regional Library. You go to, um, if you go to the on, what is your library here that you guys use? Well, it, it, it depends where they live because the boundary is actually just at the bottom of the hill. Well, I know the Vancouver Public Library, the Richmond Public Library, and the Fraser Valley Regional Library have this, so I assume whatever you're with in Coquitlam, you can. Go to their online resources, look and find the academic search primer, which comes up as EBCO host searcher, and I can get journal articles that I can't get free online. I can get them through my library. So this is... Again, something that I was looking at for Acts 2, Holy Community of Life and Property Amongst the Poor. So I put that in. I can't get it free online. Through my public library, I can sign up, go online at their search, academic search primer, and get journal articles that are more specific resolving a problem that I might have. And if you really, really, really want information and you can't get it online, you can go to Regent, and they have something called the Atla Database that you can use at Regent, and if you have to sit in the library, and you can photocopy it, but you can get really good journal articles as well through the Atlas database. You can't, unless you're a Regent grad, you can't use it online. If you're a Regent grad, you can get the password and use it online, which is also very handy. <laughs> or if you have a Regent grad who doesn't have very good ethics. Okay. <laughs> so we all have good ethics. Okay. <laughs> We're just a little bit over time. How about uh, four more minutes, okay? Four more minutes. I just want to conclude. Um, and we can do questions too, but what we'll probably do is we'll, um, we'll conclude, and then if you have questions, maybe you can just come up and uh, talk to Marty and myself afterwards. Is that okay? Is that, I, I want to honor our time. Uh, Eugene Peterson uh, tells a story of... Um, it's a, a book by Herman Melville, not Moby Dick, but it's a different book. And he talks about there's a character in this book, and a guy's named Dr. Cuticle. Great name, right? He's a doctor. And so he's a surgeon, too. And so there's, a, there's an instance on the ship. Uh, somebody gets injured, somebody gets hurt. And so Dr. Cuticle's like, awesome. You know, he gets a chance because it's, you know, it's during the, uh, I think, the 19th century. So he just loves the opportunity to look inside a body and to help this person get better. And so... They stretch out the guy who's hurt, and, and, and Dr. Cuticle goes, all right, so he starts you know, doing the operation, and everybody's watching, and, he, and the doctor is, is excited. He's like, well, look at this. There, that's his heart, and if you look there, that's the, that's the liver, and, and the, the lungs, and he's doing all this, and, and, and the doctor's so excited, he's trying to fix the, fix the patient, and kind of everybody goes quiet. And he, but the doctor's so excited. He's like, oh, and then, you know, there's a spleen, and then, and then the, oh, that's, you know, that's where the blood goes here and goes that. And he looks around and everybody's quiet and he's like, well, what? And he didn't realize. But while he's looking at all these different parts of the body and examining it, the patient died. 
Now you get the point, right? Sometimes when we look at all these different parts and, 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 and commentaries, and, and these are all important things, but do not do that at the expense of the Word of God, right? Um, and, and, and that's why in, in seminary, our region, we would often talk about exegesis as exit Jesus, right? Because it's easy to stand over the text and say, this is what we're going to do. We are still a people of faith, and we need to always stand under the Bible. So I would encourage you, when you read, our starting point is faith, right? And we understand what God is revealing to us through His Word by the Holy Spirit. God's very presence, His empowering presence, enables us to read the Bible for all it's worth. It's not just some effort or mastery of tools. So that's very important. It's, it's the Bible illuminates the Word to us, right? Uh, the Holy Spirit illuminates the, the Bible to us. We're going to be talking about that tonight and tomorrow in, 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 the, in the sermon. 1 Corinthians uh, 2.14 it says, the one without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The other thing is we need to read Scripture slowly um, and, and to take it in. We need to engage not just uh, our mind, but we need to engage our heart and to ask ourselves, uh, how is this passage affecting us? Not just what does this mean, because that's, you know, in, in the West, we can, we can do that. That's important, but we also need to engage with what's going on in our hearts. The other thing is when we read Scripture, we do not worship the Bible. That's called bibliolatry. We worship Jesus. And, and, and Jesus is revealed in His Word, but the person we want to meet in Scripture, is the Word of God, Jesus Christ. And so that's really important because one of the dangers is to take all this information and just say, all right, I'm going to rip out the meaning. I don't care what it is. I'm going to apply this tool, do this, this. And, and, and yeah, you may be able to understand what the Bible says, but you'll miss Jesus. And I know so many people who know the Bible so well, and maybe you do too, who could quote left and right, but they have no clue. They have no relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I'm, I'm kind of leaving that as, as, as a bit of a warning, right? That you and I, even though we're reading the Word of God and we, we learned a lot of great tools in terms of how to read the Bible for all it's worth, that we always need to stand under the Word of God. And we come with an attitude of humility, recognizing God is God and we're not, and it's by grace that we are saved, and we live in that reality, okay? So that, that's, I think that's a, a very important thing for you to hear. Because one of the things when I was in my first year of Regent, doing exegesis and that, spiritually, as I learned about exegesis, I learned how to read, but spiritually is one of the driest years of my life. And what I had forgotten was I need to stand and spend time in communion, in relationship with Jesus Christ. And we do that in His Word, but we do that from a position of faith, in a position of submission, in a position of gratitude and humility. Okay? So that's what I want to leave you with. And I want to leave you, um, just before we... Uh, actually, I'm going to leave you with, uh, with these words from Paul. We're going to look at these actually tonight and tomorrow. Paul says this. He says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus 
and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Jesus Christ when he raised him from the dead. So let that word of God go with you. May the word of God dwell in you richly, the peace of Christ dwell in you richly, and uh, go in his grace. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.